The Bible reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Well, good morning everyone, whether you're uh, here in the congregation or at home. Uh, this is the second, as Jamie mentioned, in a series. Last week he spoke about um, faith and works, and this morning's service is entitled Works and Faith. And as Jamie uh, spoke last week, he uh, took us through Ephesians 2, and this is my quick recap of what I heard Jamie say. He said, uh, as the passage says, that uh, we are dead in our sins, that we're inclined towards um, evil and towards selfishness. And uh, the image that he used was like a car uh, that was out of alignment and just kind of naturally steered to one side of the road. That, that's how you and I function. That's our default. And because we are dead in sin, the solution can't come from us. A dead person can't save themselves, right? Um, and so therefore, the first step must come from God, right? It's by God's grace, it's by God's mercy that we've been saved. And grace, um, we'll come to Jamie's definition in a minute, but in Romans 5, Paul says that at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So... We're not deserving, we're not worthwhile, um, we're not worthy, we're ungodly, and yet Jesus dies for us. And then, and this is where Jamie uh, closed, um, just that allusion to verse 10 of Ephesians 2 about the good works prepared in advance for us to do, works then are a response of gratitude. He had a, uh, an illustration about um, a Japanese prison camp uh, over... Uh, the River Kwai, where they were building a bridge. And the camp was changed when one man uh, gave up his life for others. And as a response, the spirit, the, the, the demeanour, the chemistry uh, just was adjusted and set on a different course. And put those together and... In our tribe, we would call this the gospel. 
Um, and we've been calling it that since about 1950 and Billy Graham and those particular key concepts uh, melded into um, an explanation and an invitation we call the gospel. And part of what we focus on in our tradition is that works are a response, that we are saved first by grace through faith, and that as we are conscious of what Jesus has done for us, our natural response is to then uh, practice good works that bring glory to God. And the reason we emphasize this sense of response is because we have this fear that if we don't frame works as a response, that the inclination of our hearts, the um, estimation to think better of ourselves than we ought, will lead us to the conclusion that actually I'm a pretty good person, I'm special, I'm unique, I've got something to offer, I can bring something to the table of my own salvation. At the risk of people arriving at those conclusions, we stress that works are a response because of the work that Christ has already done. And so Jamie's definitions last week were mercy, the negative things that you do deserve but you don't receive. And the emphasis there is on God and what he doesn't give us. And grace, the emphasis falls on what God and what he does give us but we don't happen to deserve. And Jamie didn't define it but we had a little chat this week. If you wanted a consistent definition of faith that fits uh, with um, Ephesians 2, you might come up with something like this. The act of receiving this free gift, the capacity to do so is also a gift. Right? So we have been given the gift of faith and we can receive um, the grace that has been extended to us. Now, that's the spirituality that I grew up with, and I think it's the spirituality that many of you grew up with. And I think uh, a common way, a simple way to understand the relationship between works and faith, and this is probably where I defaulted when I was young and where I sensed lots of people defaulted in, in the youth groups that I grew up in, um, and even in the churches that I still serve in, was that... Faith and works are intention. There's almost a risk that they are in competition with each other. That we are saved by faith and not by works. And so we need to emphasize faith and we need to be wary of people's misunderstanding of works. And yet Jamie began last week's sermon by talking about the fact that there's actually a dance between faith and works. And it might be too simplistic to understand them as being in competition with each other, that faith and works are versing each other, vying for our hearts as we think about how it is that we are saved. Well, that's where we were last week. That was last week's message, which was called Faith and Works. This week, I've entitled today's message, Works and Faith. So let me just now read you some other scriptures other than Ephesians 2. Continue to work out your salvation. We just read. 
from Philippians, with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. It's God's at work in us, but somehow we are still called to work out our salvation. That just seems to sit a little in tension with all we've said so far, doesn't it? Let me just read you some other scriptures. We'll just feel the weight of these as they pour over us. This is James. You see that his faith, we're talking here about Abraham, his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. James seems to be implying on the surface that Abram's faith was incomplete. And yet we would want to emphasize, well, Christ has done it. It's all, it's, it's complete. But here James is saying, no, there's something incomplete about Abram's faith. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. What is James talking about there? Well, here's another, and we would be more comfortable with this. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. That's the order we're most used to as Reformed evangelicals. Faith comes first and the product, the consequence, the result, the thing which comes afterwards is works. But let us now jump to 1 Thessalonians 3, same letter, and Paul says this, Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul wants to come with his friends and minister to the congregation in Thessalonica. Why? Because the ministry of the gospel somehow completes that which is lacking in faith. What does that mean? Or what about the words of Jesus? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now, that's not just quickly pass over those words. Not everybody who says to me, yes, Jesus, you're my Lord and Saviour. That's what Jesus is saying. We would say that's enough, isn't it? You know, if you, if, if, if you confess and you believe... But Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. How do you tell who is in the kingdom of heaven and who's not? And Jesus' answer here in the Sermon on the Mount is, it's the one who is doing my will. Or again, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul here is talking about how it is that we're saved, and we're saved because of what Jesus has done. But Paul goes on, if anyone builds on this foundation, we have a responsibility to build on it. Using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. What day? The day of judgment. What's Paul saying? He's saying, you will be judged according to your works on the day of judgment. Have you thought about that? The fact that on judgment day, you will be judged according to your works? 
if your works are of gold and silver, if you give your best for Jesus, then you will be rewarded. But if you give straw and hay, you will make it as one only escaping through the flames. There are different rewards on the other side of judgment in heaven based upon your works in this life. Now you might say, hang on a sec, what about the thief on the cross? Yes, he makes it to heaven. No good works, but he's a straw and a hay person. And what Paul is saying is, you don't want to be like that. Build with gold and silver. What do we do with those passages? Because the emphasis seems to be falling in a slightly different place. Here's what I want to suggest to you. Are works evidence of faith? Absolutely. I totally agree. And I think that is where the emphasis falls in Ephesians 2 or in Galatians or in much of Romans. But I also want to say that as we consider the whole counsel of God, the breadth of Scripture, we find some other Scriptures which appear to emphasize the other side of the coin. And that is this, that somehow our works grow our faith, complete our faith, lock in, build upon our faith. And the word evidence, whilst true, somehow seems insufficient to describe the phenomena of some of the other passages. Let's just dig a little deeper for a moment and I'll try and explain to you what I think is happening here. In Philippians 2, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, Paul here is talking about obedience. And what happens when Paul talks about obedience? Well, let me tell you what happens in Galatians. In Galatia, there are lots of former Jews who believe that um, circumcision is important. They're aligned with a circumcision party back in Jerusalem. And they think that by obeying works of the law, circumcision, food laws, ceremonial cleaning laws, Sabbath laws, you somehow can lock in your salvation. And Paul is saying to the people in Galatia, no, not true. You're not under the law, you're under grace. And can you see how that is the right message for the legalists? And that's the key problem that Paul is struggling with as he writes to the Galatians. And I want to say that that's not dissimilar to what's going on in Rome, where you've got Jews and Gentiles who are also arguing about the law. Philippi has a different context. Paul is writing to them initially to thank them for their offering, uh, for the collection that's, that's going to go to Jerusalem. Um, but then he takes the opportunity to say a few things about the Christian life, as he does in the second half of all of his letters. And here is what he says. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Who's he writing to in Philippi? 
And the background um, writers tell us that there are two groups of people in Philippi. There are legalists who think that as soon as they hear about good works, they're prone to thinking, oh, I can be saved by good works. Yes, I do my good works. Here's my ticket. And there are some people who are not trusting in good works. In fact, they are against the law and good works. And to be slightly technical, we might call them antinomial. Anti, against, nomos, Greek word for law. And so there is a type of spirituality also present in the first century, not that says, I'm saved by circumcision, that actually says, you know what? The law doesn't matter at all. I don't need to bother about the law. I'm not under the law. Um, Or, to use some more first century language, they might say something like, um, my spirit has been saved, uh, my soul has been saved, what happens in my flesh, what happens in my body, it doesn't matter, it doesn't make any difference. We might also want to call these people libertines. And if Paul just writes to libertines what he writes to the Galatians, you're under the law, you're under grace, you're not under the law, what do you think they will hear? What they will hear is, oh, thank you very much, Paul. That's perfect. That's what we thought. Now we can keep on doing what we want to do. But Paul says to that part of the audience, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not giving them a license to be libertine or to be liberal. They're inclined to hear slightly different things, and so he emphasises a different part of the gospel. So, who are we more like in the 21st century? Are we like the Galatians? Is the default 21st spirituality, 21st century spirituality, to think that somehow we can be saved by good works? That's what it was in the first century for, for Jews. That's Martin Luther who wakes up and goes to confession so many times a day that his abbot tells him, Martin, you don't have to come back, who um, beats himself and who sleeps on um, the sandstone floor because he feels so guilty and, and he can never quite do enough. And it's through his lenses that we understand the gospel and approach the book of Galatians. But as I eavesdrop in on the 21st century... I don't think we are default legalists. I think we are default libertines. And we have phrases in popular culture like this. No regrets. Doesn't matter what I've done in the past. Uh, I I don't feel bad about... I don't need to feel guilty. Or here's another one. Um, I might drink, I might have a flutter on the pokies or on the horses, but I do not allow that to define me. In other words, in 21st century thinking, we have this notion that somehow what we do does not impact how we define the essence of who we are. And I want to suggest to you that if we are more inclined 
to be libertine in our spirituality and our understanding of ourselves that perhaps Paul's emphasis, if he was writing to us, would be work out your salvation. Let me jump to one other passage, the James 2 passage. You see that his faith and his actions were working together. This is James writing about Abram. Uh, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Uh, in fact, um, Paul explores this more fully in Romans 4. And in the first half of Romans 4, Paul writes to the Jews, those who believe that you're saved by good works, and he says this, when was Abraham saved? When did he receive a promise? When he was circumcised? No, he wasn't circumcised. See, it's not by the work of circumcision. It's not the works of obeying the law that save you. That's the first point Paul makes in Romans 4. But then he goes on and he writes this. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. The promise of what? A land, a nation. Um, you'll be my people, I'll be your God. The promise of innumerable descendants so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all offsprings. Those promises, Abraham doesn't deserve those. God has extended those by grace. Yet, Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. What's Paul talking about here? I remember studying this uh, in New Testament at Moore College, and my lecturer was Glenn Davies. And I think his PhD was on Paul and the law. Um, and here's what Glenn said is going on in this passage. Is Abraham saved by grace? Are the promises extended um, by grace? Absolutely. But... What does Abraham do in faith? The promise is that you will be the father of a great nation. You'll have many descendants. And Abraham is past the age of fertility. And his wife is past the age of bearing children. Can Abraham produce an offspring in his own strength? Can he fulfill the promise in his own strength? No, no chance. It's all God. God has to intervene and do something miraculous. But what does Abraham have to do? He still has to do something. By faith, he lays with his wife, trusting and believing that somehow God will use his otherwise useless actions to fulfill his promises. And that is another picture of what faith is like. And now we're in the book of Hebrews. Faith is about entrusting yourself to God and his faithfulness and acting in certain ways that make no sense to us and in our strength would achieve absolutely nothing and yet believing through faith that somehow God will bless that. And so you see, this word faith is a slippery word. Does it mean believing that God has saved you by grace through faith in Christ alone? Absolutely. 
There is that sense to the word, and in various passages, that's where Paul or the New Testament emphasis falls. But in other places, like in the book of, say, 1 Thessalonians, or perhaps in Philippians, and certainly in Hebrews, the emphasis falls on faith as trusting or entrusting yourself to God. And in the book of James, the emphasis falls on the faithfulness as a response, and that expresses itself in action. Why am I telling you all of this in the first sermon of the year? At the time where historically we're thinking about New Year's resolutions and stuff like that. Well, here's what I want to suggest. Um, I think this is the time where we think about New Year's resolutions. And this is a time where, um, I, I don't know what your psyche has been like over the past couple of years. I'm guessing it's not unlike mine. Uh, I've kind of thought to myself, oh, you know, COVID's gone like this, and, and then we thought we were getting better, and then it got worse again, and, and so last year was terrible. We were all excited at the start of last year. It was going to be better. Ended up being a really bad year. Um, and then we came, and we got our freedoms back, and, and we started, and, and now, now Omicron is going absolutely nuts, and, and it's so hard to get motivated, isn't it? It's so hard to make any plans, and I'm kind of feeling not just in all parts of my life, including my spiritual, I'm, you just so easily feel deflated and lacking resilience. And thinking to myself, well, what's the point? And, and um, I haven't got the energy to, 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 to get out of bed and try. I, I, I don't know if I could be bothered with New Year's resolutions this year. Who knows what's going to happen and whether or not I'm going to pull them off and I might just get disappointed. So, I, you know, let's just kind of cope with every day and see what happens and then if we make it out of the woods eventually, that'd be nice. Well, I want to suggest to you that this is a good year to work out your salvation. That good works are important for your spirituality. And let me explain something that I don't think we quite get in Western culture. Um, it was an experiment about 20-odd years ago. And they brought three groups of people, uh, randomly allocated, uh, into the room. And they said to one group of people, can you stack and unstack and restack and unstack and restack these chairs? Right? And the first people, they got them to do that, and they had to do it for free. And the second group of people did exactly the same task and they did it and they got paid a dollar. Remember, it's like 20, 30 years ago. And then the third group of people, they did exactly the same task and they got paid $20, maybe $100 in today's uh, currency. And they said to the first group of people, why did you do it? What did you think? What did you feel as you were doing it? And they said, you know what, it was a pretty silly task, but, you know, it was a psychology experiment and it's, it's a good thing to do and we hope that somehow it's helpful and the psychologists have learned something, but yeah, whatever. And the last group said, we hated it, it was boring. It sucked, but you know what, we got good money. And uni students need money, so yeah, that's why we did it. Now the group who got paid a dollar, you know what they said? They couldn't say we just did it for the for the joy of participating in an experiment because they got paid. 
but they didn't get paid enough to actually make it worthwhile, their answer was, oh, we enjoyed it. We enjoyed stacking and unstacking and restacking and unstacking and restacking chairs. That's not enjoyable. We're complex creatures, aren't we? The experiment shows that sometimes your feelings catch up and justify your actions when your actions come first. And that you change your thinking and your self-narrative and explanations about what's going on on the basis of what it is that you have done. And so I want to suggest to you that this might be a good time to work out your salvation, to practice good works. We're talking about the intersection between thoughts, feelings and behaviours. And here's how I think this works. My father taught me that thinking was all that mattered. Feelings were dangerous. Don't listen to them. If you think right, your behaviours will fall into place. That's how he explained life worked. Uh, perhaps your father, or you might have even taught uh, the next generation that. That was kind of how lots of people thought. Um, and there are various reasons why my father thought that. We don't need to go into that. Um, as I look at my children, they're of a generation that thinks differently. Uh, they live in a world where get your feelings right. Get in touch with your passions, with your desires, and then the behaviours will fall into place. But what this experiment suggests is that sometimes if you get your behaviours right, your thoughts and your feelings fall into line. And so I want to say to you, work out your salvation. If you're feeling deflated, lacking energy, lacking focus like me, just put some good spiritual disciplines into place and practice them. Come to church, fellowship with Christians, watch online, listen to some podcasts, serve in some way, um, uh, pray for other people and their needs and what's going on in their world. Just do those basic things. Whether or not you feel like it, whether or not you feel led, whether or not you think it's the right, whether or not you even might be afraid that somehow you think you're going to be saved by good. Just do it. And see what happens. Let me close with this. And it's an illustration uh, that I've borrowed from someone called John Mark Comer. And he says this. Um, let me describe two people to you. Here's somebody, they went to the Olympics, um, they won a medal in a running race, uh, and then afterwards they hung up their joggers next to their medal and they've never been running since. They're now overweight, unhealthy. But if you ask them, are you a runner, they would say, yes, I've got a medal to prove it. Next door is another person who's never been good at running, 
they're not fast, they're not efficient, they've got terrible style, but every morning they get out of bed and hail, rain or shine, they run three times around the block and it's about six or seven k's. Let me ask you, which of those two people is a runner? The one who said, something happened in my past, I've got something to prove it, or the one who gets out of bed and runs every day? Doesn't that sound like when Jesus says, the one who is in the kingdom is the one who does my will? I want to suggest to you that it might be timely for us evangelicals to give up our fear that good works might lead to us thinking that we're not saved completely by grace. To get out of bed and to run or read or pray or care or give or love like Jesus did and let our thoughts and our feelings catch up with our actions. Let me pray for us. God, as we come to you this first Sunday of the year, it's, it's a crazy time in history. And you lived at a crazy time in history. And history's got lots of crazy moments, but we're living in this one. And maybe we're feeling lost, or maybe we're feeling deflated and uninspired and weary. Lord, thank you that, Jesus, you say to us, if you love me, obey me. But in the very next chapter, you also say that if you remain in me, that your love will grow. And maybe that's where we need to be this new year. Maybe we just need to remain and act and step out and work out our faith. And we ask that thoughts and feelings would come. But for now, might we be found faithful? And might we do that for your glory? Amen.